Welcome to the Lab Podcast, where we empower women to use the repertoire to heal and thrive. I'm Lynn Rain. I'm Regina Chow Trammell. And I'm Yvette Latende. We are Latina, Asian, and Black professional women. There is a need for professional women to share their perspectives while navigating our roles. We cover cultural ways of thinking that shape this discussion and share practical tips for managing stress, thinking through identity, navigating life stage change, and living in abundance. This is The Lab. When I think about key people that have been healers, the more that I learn about um, our ancestors, and I say our collectively, because I'm learning more about Latino, Latina healers, Asian American leaders, um, a, a group that's really on my heart to personally learn more about that I feel like has, their voice has really been silenced, our Southeast Asians and our Native Indigenous brothers and sisters. But when I think about all that people have been through, but the amazing work that they show up to do, I think about Maya Angelou and her background and the things that she's dealt with all of her life. And then to somehow shift that energy and have an abundance mindset and just become the greatest poet ever, the most loving human being ever. Um, I think about Mary McLeod Bethune, a woman who started a school at a time where I know she had little to no financial or emotional support. And I think about a, a scholar by the name of Kanjufu, a black male in education that's positioning black people as positive and having strengths at a time where that's not popular. And just imagining the ridicule that he probably endured What about you, Regina? Who comes up for you as key healers? Yeah, I'll share some personal and kind of like the names you shared of that just ancestors. But I do want to say as an Asian female, I've been really grateful for, you know, hearing, especially during the Black Lives Matter um, protests and action oriented community well-being kind of um, action centered points is the black community. And I do, I agree with you on those voices. I think a lot of us as minorities look up to the black community because of the years and the work and all of that. So I, I want to acknowledge how, um, you know, the black community has really serve, served and serviced um, the Asian community, even back in the civil rights era, right? We can think about a lot of the co, um, especially, I, I just want to acknowledge the fact that Vincent Chin's anniversary um, his death just happened this past week and the anniversary of that. Uh, and so I think about, yeah, his family. And I think about even just personally, like my paternal and maternal grandmothers, just as women and what they had to carry, um, my maternal grandmother, her husband had to leave their country in order to survive, you know, and she had to stay behind with my mother and, parent her through the communist takeover in China and just how difficult that was for her. And then she took action and then she organized and helped bring a whole family out of China. My paternal grandmother 
as well, kind of part of an underground railroad, so to speak, in China during the time of war. And she was part of that organizing effort. And I think I'm a social worker because of both of these grandmothers. They really organized and helped communities. I mean, I'll just say as kind of a side note, you know, I live in LA. It's a huge community. But on a regular basis, I run into people in our community who know my grandmothers, you know, like, who know, or they've given honor to my grandmothers because of the work that they've done, that they, that they can point to my family as helping sponsor them or literally like strangers who my paternal grandmother uh, made sure was settled is a new immigrant. So I'm really proud of them. Um, and I just, it almost makes me cry. Like, I just want to honor them. You know, it's, it's amazing. And it's such a great template for me. I just feel like I'm such a slacker. Like I, don't, I, I haven't done nearly as much and I complain about too little, but they've, they've suffered. So anyways, those are, those are the stories I wanted to share. Um, is there anything else that you think of Lynn as, of, as we've talked about kind of yeah, this family history or or other things that you feel like comes up for you in healing. Yeah, I think there's, you know, always stories, right? Uh, growing up and what our families have gone through. And, you know, I think that, um, you know, immigration is tough. Like you mentioned, you know, your grandma assisting people and coming. And I think there's I always think about my family and I think, oh my goodness, my parents, you know, my grandparents were so courageous, you know, um, and coming to a country where they didn't know the language, they had no resources, they had no friends. Um, I can't imagine doing that, moving to a country where I don't know the language and I don't know where I'm going to live or what job I'm going to have. You know, I think that our ancestors, you know, have a lot of courageous stories um, that we can definitely lean on and, and, you know, in terms of healing and, um, they're, like I said, I, I don't think I could do that. So I think it's, they're, they're great reminders, um, of the strength that we have and that strength that, you know, our ancestors had that can really, that we can pull from in our current healing during tough times. Well, ladies, what do you think? Because, you know, one of the things that this podcast, we want to be unique in that we want to address the individual aspect and also organizational. So we know we've listened to so many podcasts. We read so many books that kind of always tell people that are at the short end of oppression and violence of how to fix themselves. How do you adjust yourself so that you can do a couple deep breaths and not complain about working too much or being underpaid? So what do we think that organizations can do to help promote healing in the workspace? Um, some things that came up for me in some of my writing reads recently about what organizations were, what can do is when we're thinking about promoting people, um, opening it up to be flexible so, so people can actually integrate their real selves into their work. There are so many ways to meet work expectations and we can do that by tapping into our strengths. Um, but that means that there's an open, multiple ways that those requirements can be met, right? Um, so that's something like if service is a requirement, it's not just service that is related to something academic, 
But if my community means a lot to me, then service in my community should count towards that requirement. Or if there's service on campus that really fall into my love and passion for families on campus, how do we integrate families more into the lives of our college students? Like Rendon talks about validation theory and how that family is key to that those students, first generation or not, succeeding in that environment. So what, ladies, what can organizations do to help promote healing as we work? I'll start with you, Regina. No, I love this question, Yvette, because it's so true. There's, I was thinking about this, even in the context of my own workplace right now, and I was thinking about our leadership and how, you know, we can't help it. We have affinity towards people who are like us, you know, on the individual and kind of more of the mezzo level, like as groups, right? We we do feel more comfortable as minorities. I'll just share a quick story of, I just remember my, in elementary school, when the moms would sit together to pick up our, wait to, for our kids to be picked up, there was a table of like local folks who were all predominantly majority culture. And then there was a table of all the rest of the minorities all mixed in. And it was just affinity. And so I think what's key for organizations is to cultivate those friendships all along the way, because you're going to, it's implicit bias, but also affinity where you're going to pick someone, you can't help it, you're human. There's a lot of research on how we do that. You know, I think that's something that we can't always override, which lends itself to stereotypes, but it's really key for key leaders to develop and cultivate real authentic friendships and professional collegial working relationships with people who do not look like them, who are not the same gender, who are not the same socioeconomic class. And if we, if you don't do that these days as a leader, you're not practicing best practices and leadership for the world ahead, period. If you don't cultivate those relationships, you are going to be behind. Your leadership is going to fail. Give it five, 10 years. It will show up. And it's going to, and people just won't tolerate it. When we think about Gen Z demographics, this is majority minority. And, you know, I think it's important to be culturally savvy and sophisticated. It is a sophisticated leadership that is going to be effective. And sophistication is not being elitist. It is reaching out and expanding your community. So I think from the top, right, like those folks need to, it's not representation anymore. I think that's over. Forget representation and tokenism. It is real authentic relationships and really seeing the strengths of each of our communities and putting them into practice because something ain't working in our society right now. And if you can't see that, then you're in a bubble and that bubble will pop. So I, sorry, you could hear the heat behind me, but I'm, I'm personally just tired of the fact that our communities represented here are not given access. I know Lynn's got a lot to say on access. So I just want to pass the mic to you, Lynn. Same question. Yeah, absolutely. I'll say a few things. Um, you know, my research has been on working mothers and I've researched how other countries handle things like maternity leave. That's always been an interest of mind of mine. And um you know, one of the things is that companies are losing on a great asset of working mothers. 
And I think by providing flexible schedules, you know, I work a lot in my private practice with when women have babies and return to the workforce. And I always tell them, start on a Friday or a Thursday. So it's two days and then you have the weekend, you know, to recover and adjust. And I always recommend like a slow startup, you know, starting up, you know, so that's something that companies can do. um, Institutions, organizations can do is like, when a mom goes on a maternity leave, do a slow, have them start part-time for two weeks, you know, yes, maybe you're, it's a slow start, but it's a more successful outcome. So starting maybe two weeks of part-time, starting the first day on a Friday, and then doing like two weeks part-time, and then shifting to that full-time um, time. And I would say also flexible schedules, right? I think it's very important for moms if they have to pick up their kids after school, or if their child is sick, or you know, to be flexible. Um, Women can accomplish a lot. We know working moms have five hats that they wear and they're very efficient. So, but I think we need to kind of move away from that Monday to Friday, nine to five, you know, kind of um, work structure because it doesn't work. And everyone is productive at different times, right? There's a lot of research that we all have different prime times to do different types of work. So we should really be maximizing our prime times. For me, for example, writing four to six is my time to write. It's not 9am. It's not 12 noon. It's not 10 o'clock. It's four to six. That's my prime time for writing. For other things, it's different times. So I think providing um, working moms with a flexible work schedule is important. The other thing I want to say is considering for promotion access. I'm a big person about you know, looking at oppressive practices that deny access. So sometimes I think, you know, especially mid-level managers are like, well, so-and-so is not interested in management. They never mentioned it. Well, you need to ask because especially minority women are, you know, they, they're humble. I think we're humble in, in workspaces that we think, well, you know, if I'm a good employee, they're going to ask me to take up a leadership role where, you know, we have workplaces that are very aggressive, right? Dominant culture is you go after what you want, which does not culture, you know, it doesn't make sense culturally for a lot of different groups out there that that's not seen as a strength, you know, it, it, you wait until you are awarded with something or seen. Um, So I think it's very important for institutions to, and I would say supervisors and mid-level managers and directors and, you know, whatever level at an institution to really ask the question, is this something you're interested in? Have you thought about leadership opportunities? Is that something that you want to be developed? The other thing is we need to develop these employees. Um, you know, they may not come in with those skill sets, but they can really thrive. So I think it's, again, um, a way to reduce that oppressive practice is to provide access to their employees. And I just want to add a a last thing, Um, thinking about organizations, they've heard the stories, they've collected data on how faculty of color or staff of color and students of color are feeling. So the data is there. What about using that data to set up prevention, intervention and accountability around some of this race based and gender based kinds of things? So the information is there and prevention would look like how are we onboarding people? What are we saying is the culture of our organization? How do we expect you to check in and to individually grow in those areas at your own pace? Um, You find out where you're starting from and we expect you to grow. Um, And then intervening. Um, We noticed with with COVID um, and the Black faculty started to get attacked and Latina faculty started to be attacked in the classroom. And it was very obvious but there were no policies to protect 
Black, Latina, and Asian women in higher ed against a student um, not wanting to hear about social justice in class or equity or look at frameworks that um, integrated uh, authors and scholars of color and their theories, right? Um, so there was nothing in place to kind of decipher these covert acts of racism and gendered kinds of things that could impact someone's evaluation. So that would be an intervention. And then accountability. There are people that have clear track records of saying things to students they shouldn't say, touching students' hair, sexually harassing students and other employees. And like, how long are we gonna reflect on those things before we act, right? So I'm thinking prevention, intervention, accountability. Um, yeah, so those are some of my thoughts and what organizations can kind of do to help promote healing. Um, since we are being brought in to do this transformative, amazing work, um, protect us as we do, help protect us as we do this work um, and not add to the trauma. Well, this has been The Lab Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Today's conversation was rich and full of detail on tips that you could take away in healing as work. What can we do individually? Who can we draw from? and how organizations can help us. Can you please leave us a comment and rate our podcast and share our podcast with people who need to hear about healing at work? Thank you so much for joining us at The Lab. Thanks for listening to The Lab Podcast, where we empower women to use their repertoire to heal and thrive. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be a replacement for professional services, including psychotherapy. Please leave a comment on how this content has served you and find out how to reach us in the show notes.